Hello, and welcome to the Parabola Podcast. I'm story editor Betsy Cornwell. Today, I'd like to share with you some excerpts from our winter 1978 issue of Parabola, Androgyny. And I'll begin with The Gnostic Vision by Elaine H. Pagels. From the nine muses, one separated away. She came to a high mountain and spent some time there, so that she desired herself alone in order to become androgynous. She fulfilled her desire and became pregnant from her desire. He was born. The angels who were over the desire nourished him, and he received power and glory there. This myth, included in the Apocalypse of Adam, an ancient text recently discovered in Upper Egypt, claims to tell the birth of the Savior. Yet the image of androgyny contained in this ancient source bears a meaning that recurs often in contemporary works, the autonomy of the female. Desiring herself alone, she becomes self-sufficient and productive. Perhaps the myth also intends to suggest that she brings forth the male that is within her. Other sources from the same discovery tell a similar myth, that wisdom, severing her relationship with her male companion, became pregnant by herself. Yet the poet who tells this story, Valentinus, takes this as evidence of a fundamental disharmony in the universe, which in his view properly consists of masculine and feminine energies in harmony with one another. If the Apocalypse of Adam describes androgyny as an achievement to be attained, another text, The Interpretation of the Soul, describes it as the original condition of the soul. The wise of old gave the soul a feminine name. Indeed, she is female in her nature as well. She even has her womb. As long as she was alone with the father, she was a virgin and in form androgynous. But when she fell down into a body and came into this life, then she prostituted herself. As long as the soul keeps running around everywhere, copulating with whomever she meets, she exists in suffering. But when she weeps and repents, then the father will have mercy on her and will make her womb turn from outside and will turn it again inward. And the soul will receive her individuality. Then the soul becomes again what she was before. This has a different message about human autonomy. It suggests that the soul in everyone, men and women alike, recovers its original androgyny, its individuality, by withdrawing from mere sensation and turning inward. Discovered by accident in 1947, these texts and about 50 others disclose astonishing new evidence of the early Christian movement. These texts claim to reveal secret traditions about Jesus, including sayings, myths, poems, dialogues, philosophical and mystical treatises, all of which were banned, burned, and destroyed as heresy as early as 80 to 140 AD. For the first time, this discovery offers evidence of forms of Christian teaching that the Orthodox Church attacked and suppressed. Yet the people who wrote and revered these texts did not consider themselves to be heretics. They insisted that they, not the Orthodox, understood the true meaning of Christ and his teaching. The movement they represent is called Gnosticism, from the Greek word gnosis translated as knowledge or insight, since these Christians claimed to know secret traditions that were kept hidden from the masses. The discovery includes the secret gospel of Thomas, the gospel of Philip, the gospel to the Egyptians, and the secret book of John, to name only a few. Written originally in Greek in the late 1st or early 2nd century, some may have been contemporaneous with the gospels of the New Testament. Professor H. Kuster of Harvard University suggests that some of these texts may be even earlier.
Many striking differences separate these sources from what we know as Orthodox Christian tradition. Here we can consider only one of these differences. These texts, which abound in sexual symbolism, frequently use the image of the androgyne. But when we begin to investigate this image in Gnostic texts, we discover that it occurs in a variety of different ways that suggest different meanings. Besides connoting the person who has achieved autonomy, as in the examples above, we find that often the image is used in a second way to express a new vision of humanity. According to the Gnostic teacher Simon, since the divine source of all things consists of a bisexual power, what came into being from that power, that is humanity being one, is discovered to be two, a male-female being that bears the female within it. This refers to the story in Genesis 2, which relates Eve's birth out of Adam's side. Thus, Adam being one is discovered to be two, an androgyne who bears the female within him. Rabbis in Talmudic times had made a similar inference from the creation account in Genesis 1.27. So God created humanity, Adam, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Rabbi Samuel bar Nachman, perhaps influenced by Plato's myth in the Symposium, speculated that when the Holy One, blessed be he, first created humankind, he created him with two faces, two sets of genitals, four arms and legs, back to back. Then he split Adam in two and made two backs, one on each side. The Gnostic author of the Gospel of Philip agreed with Nachman that originally humanity lived in harmony as an androgynous being. But when the two elements, male and female, became separated from one another, this, he explains, was the fall that brought death into being. To overcome death, humanity must recover that original androgyny. When Eve was still in Adam, death did not exist. When she was separated from him, death came into being. If he again becomes complete and attains his former self, death will be no more. According to the Gospel of Thomas, Jesus teaches that whoever achieves the state of perfect consciousness perceives the male and female as one and the same. Jesus saw infants being suckled. He said to his disciples, These infants being suckled are like those who enter the kingdom. They said to him, Shall we then as children enter the kingdom? Jesus said, When you make the two one, and when you make the inside like the outside, and the outside like the inside, and the above like the below, and when you make the male and the female one and the same, so that the male will not be male, and the female not be female, then you will enter the kingdom. Later, Salome asks Jesus, Who are you, man, that you have come up on my bed and eaten from my table? Jesus replies to Salome that whoever sees differences between male and female has not achieved enlightenment, but whoever recognizes them as the same is filled with light. Some Gnostic teachers, agreeing that Adam existing in original perfection was an androgyne, drew from this a more radical inference. They pondered the verse that precedes the account of creation, Genesis 1.26, and God said, let us make humanity in our image after our likeness. How, they asked, could a masculine single god say this? And to whom? Since the account goes on to say that humanity was created male and female, they conclude that the god in whose image we are made must likewise be both masculine and feminine, both father and mother. Besides expressing an image of autonomy or of the unity of humanity then, androgyny often bears a third meaning in these ancient sources. It expresses the true nature of the divine being. The teacher Valentinus begins with the premise that God is essentially indescribable. 
Yet he suggests the divine can be imagined as a dyad consisting of two elements, one he calls the ineffable, the source, the primal father, the other, the silence, grace, and the mother of all things. The Gnostic Simon celebrates the divine source as the one power that is above and below, self-generating, self-discovering, its own mother, its own father, its own sister, its own son, father, mother, root of all things. What do the Gnostic teachers mean when they describe God in this way? Different teachers offer different interpretations. Some maintain that the divine is to be considered masculo-feminine, the great male-female power, Others insist that the terms serve only as metaphors, for in reality the divine is neither masculine nor feminine. A third group suggests that one can describe the source of all things in either masculine or feminine terms, depending on which aspect one intends to stress. Proponents of these diverse views agree, however, that the divine is to be understood as consisting of a harmonious, dynamic relationship of opposites, a concept that may be akin to the Eastern view of yin and yang, but remains antithetical to Orthodox Judaism and Christianity. This third context for the image of the androgyne, then, intends to describe the fullness of being, of which we, in our limited sexual self-definition, usually experience only a part. Sometimes, the image of androgyny is implicit, as in the account in the secret book of John that tells how John, the brother of James, went out after the crucifixion with great grief and had a mystical vision of the Trinity. As I was grieving, the heavens were opened, and the whole creation shone with an unearthly light, and the universe was shaken. I was afraid, and behold, behold, a unity in three forms appeared to me, and I marveled, how can a unity have three forms? To John's question, the vision replies, It said to me, John, John, why do you doubt and why do you fear? I am the one who is with you always. I am the father. I am the mother. I am the son. John's interpretation of the Trinity as father, mother, and son may startle us at first, but upon reflection, we can recognize it as a natural and spontaneous interpretation. Where the Greek term for the spirit, pneuma, being neuter, virtually requires that the third person of the Trinity be asexual, the author of the secret book has in mind the Hebrew term for spirit, ruah, a feminine term. He thus concludes logically enough that the feminine person conjoined with the father and son must be the mother. The same text goes on to describe the spirit as an androgyne, the father-mother. She is the image of the invisible, virginal, perfect spirit. She became the mother of the all, for she existed before them all, the mother-father, Matropater, the first humanity, the Holy Spirit, the thrice male, the thrice powerful, the thrice named, androgynous one. According to another of the secret texts discovered at Nag Hammadi, trimorphic protonoia, literally the triple-formed primal thought, when one discovers the presence of the divine within, one experiences its presence as androgynous. The text opens as the divine figure speaks. I am Protonoia, the thought that exists in the light, she who exists before the all. I move in every creature. I am the invisible one within the all. I am perception and knowledge uttering a voice by means of thought. I cry out in everyone, and they know that a seed dwells within." The second section, spoken by a second divine figure, opens with the words, I am the voice. It is I who speak within every creature. Now I have come a second time in the likeness of a female and have spoken with them. I revealed myself in the thought 
of the likeness of my masculinity. Later, the voice explains that I am androgynous. I am both father and mother since I copulate with myself and with those who love me. We have noted then three different ways in which the image of the androgyne occurs in Gnostic sources. First, to indicate a state of human autonomy. Second, to describe the original unity of humankind or its state of ultimate perfection. Third, to represent the fullness of the divine. Yet we have sketched here only a few examples of the extraordinary range of images that these newly discovered texts offer. Published in English for the first time this year as the Nag Hammadi Library from Harper and Row, they are currently attracting great attention. The discoveries they will make possible, perhaps especially in the study of literary imagery and in the history of religion and culture, are only beginning. We'll turn now to an essay by one of my favorite contributors to Parabola, P.L. Travers, also the author of the Mary Poppins books. This is her essay from the same issue, Letter to a Learned Astrologer. Rupert, do you remember the wine and the candles and you pouring over the charts and saying something is wrong, the hour, the month, the year, the place, you are simply not a Leo. Do you mean that I was left on a doorstep, but there are records, you have seen them. Yes, yes, I know all that. But where is the swing of the tasseled tail, the roar in the jungle, the proud mane? You are right, said Hillary, not at all as an astrologer, but as a man convinced of the truth of his own instinct. She could never, ever be a lion, that defenseless smile. Yes, he went on. And when Helen and I went to Greece and asked her what we should bring back, something that costs a penny, she said. And the job we had finding it, Leah would have wanted something grander. It was clear that the lion was not your favorite sign. So together you tried to remake the past, while Helen and I, mute as caryatids and no wiser, but perhaps no more foolish either, looked on as you juggled with times and planets, ripped me untimely from the womb to birth me according to your joint assumptions into a more appropriate sign. And the planets would not budge. You sighed and set to work on the souffle. Sun in midheaven, all that largesse in the zenith, but you don't really live your sign. No swanning around, no king of the beasts. It may, of course, be due to your Saturn, but Saturn is the great teacher, and the signs say you are willing to learn. It's as if, and I'm not now being scientific, as if you felt there was something missing. Well, what's in the mid-hell, I asked. Nadir, you corrected me. Nothing. It's quite empty. Something stirred. Not a flash of light. I have never been to Damascus. It was more as if an inward glass had very gently cracked. A thought went blowing through me that was wiser than my own, quick to come and quick to go among the wine and candles. Afterwards, you cast the tarot and took down the lines as you always did whenever I threw the I Ching. I was shy of doing either by myself, a feeling of insufficiency that left me when you were part of the process. Ah, that, you said, is your Mars trine Venus, the black fish with white eye, white fish with black. You will always want the two of them together in the circle, but you know that, chart or no chart. We all laughed. Vive la différence. And again, that conceptual cracking of glass. It took me years to learn what it meant, and I could not talk to you about it. You had gone away among wandering stars whose courses only Helen could chart. And in any case, would I have told you? To speak of anything till it is ripe, that is dangerous. Maybe indeed it's dangerous ever to speak at all. 
So I let things go on fermenting in me till gradually I came to understand that the two fish function on many levels. It did not occur to you that night, when we laughed at Mars and Venus, that as well as those planetary lovers, the South would naturally long for the North, and the Zenith not be satisfied until it was aligned with the Nadir, nor the Sun content without the dark. Ever since I can remember, that full mid-heaven had for me been empty. As a child, I used to dread the sunset because of the longing that came with it. There must be something else, I would say, not at all knowing what it was, but knowing too that as far as the wind blows and the sky is blue, I would go and find it. I seized upon any opportunity that would set me on my way. One came when a special issue of the Children's Encyclopedia, sent by some relative from England, slipped from the postman's saddlebags and disgorged a letter addressed to me. Dear child, it began sweetly, in a manly human hand and went on to outline the delectable subjects the editor was preparing, inviting me to explore with him the worlds that were opening up before me and earnestly wishing for my future happiness. It was signed affectionately, Arthur Me. I had received my first love letter. In vain did the grown-ups rudely assure me that it wasn't written to me. Thousands of children would receive the same letter, which, moreover, was not written by hand, but by some sort of machine. I did not believe them. To do so would be to accept betrayal. Here was a man who understood exactly what I needed. So I wrote to this Arthur Me, explaining my situation as far as I then understood it, and asked him to send me the fare to England. How else could I go exploring with him? He would not have to provide for me, I assured him, for I planned to sweep crossings like little Joe. The answer was long in coming, and when it came unsatisfactory, he had no real wish, apparently, to go with me anywhere. He had no continuing concern for my welfare. There was no sign of check or money order, merely an injunction, a great aunt rather than a lover's, to be a good girl and help my mother. Signed, somebody-something secretary, and not even by hand. Naturally, I was reprimanded, not for soliciting strange men, but for bothering that dear Mr. Me. Years later, I was to learn that dear Mr. Me had detested children, but, according to someone who had worked with him, had delighted in Mary Poppins. I wonder what course my life would have followed, Robert Frost's road not taken, if he had delighted in me. It was a setback. But children take such things in their stride. They are familiar with the word no from the time they are in the womb. Another door I knew would open. And to my mind, it did. Walking on the hillside one day, I came upon a group of gypsies. Now, gypsies I knew were apt to steal children. They also traveled the world. The juxtaposition of two such facts seemed to me auspicious. But these were not tinker gypsies. They were creatures such as I had never seen. Tall, stately men in blue gowns and women veiled in black. Looking back, I see that they must have been Mohammedans with their peaked tents and a camel browsing. Any child stolen by such people would be taking part in a pilgrimage, or perhaps a circus, I wasn't sure which, that would without doubt end up in England. So I stationed myself on the edge of the camp, waiting like something on a bargain counter to be speedily snapped up. Nothing happened. The noble people went about their chores quietly, taking no notice of me, and addressing each other in some strange tongue. Shocked at this lack of enterprise, I took the affair into my own hands, marched toward the tallest man, and, prompted by an atavistic impulse very far from childhood, unlatched my sandals and offered them to him. If he took those, obscurely I was sure of it, he would certainly take me. A veiled woman gave me a kindly smile as he turned the sandals in his hands to see how they were made. Then he bent down, deftly buckled them on my feet, and gently but determinedly directed me to the road.
It was impossible to misunderstand. They were not going to take me across the world. I was there for the plucking, and the gypsies did not want me. Not surprisingly was the dry comment when I reached home. Families, perhaps luckily, have a unique facility for minimizing capacities and aspirations simply by disbelieving in them, making them butts for witticisms. The wise child quickly learns to dissemble and keep its dream safe and intact. Never for a moment was my intention shaken, but gradually I came to see that ask and ye shall receive is no penny in the slot affair, request at one end, gift package in the other. No one would take me bodily to where I wanted to go, which was not merely I came to sense a geographical locality, but as well an inward country. I would have to do more growing up, begin to put away childish things and find the money myself. Time not always maleficent helped. It is by its nature on the side of necessity. And when at last, pull it still rather than full-grown fowl, I stood in London with ten pounds in hand, five of which I promptly lost, the ancestors dwelling in my blood who all my life had summoned me with insistent eldritch voices murmured together like contented cats. In my person, the Antipodes had come to their own Antipodes. So, rejecting the fairy tale injunction to sip no sup in the underworld, I drank deep of the sunless north and was ready to take the consequences. Persephone reft from her sunny field, taken below by her dark bridegroom, from corn in the ear to corn at the root, did not eat of the pomegranate more readily. If later at Eleusis she was to be co-equal with her mother at the elevation of the grain, this was the thing she had to do, and also take the consequences. It had not been easy, but then I had never expected ease. Was it that old guru Saturn who coined the, fa the phrase, later pilfered by Yeats, the fascination of what's difficult, and taught it to those afflicted by him to show them how to live their own sign? I throve on what was difficult, the difficult man, the difficult child, the arduous exploring of the empty quarter, your nadir, where no planets were, where perhaps, dear Brutus, it was necessary that I should become my own planet, the discovery that in lack lies treasure if you are willing to find it, and that by confronting the unknown, not as though it were knowable, but as an absolute, one receives, oh, intimations, the hard-won realization that life like coyote is a trickster conning one into expectations that have no basis in reality, that there is nothing to expect, nothing to be gained, and nobody to blame, that there are no rights of any kind, but only a purpose to be served. Was that my something else? I had to learn that to be vulnerable, naked, and defenseless is the only way to safety, that the sieve knows a lot about water, emptiness about plenitude, the ironies of kindliness." This is easy to say, less so to accept, but one can go ripe on difficulty, as a plum grows ripe on sunlight. Your charts were not wrong. I am a Leo, and your instinct was right. I am not a lion. I carry no golden shawl on my shoulders. I have never felt I was king of the beasts. But the lion, remember, keeps a handmaiden, not consort. She's no queen of the jungle. The nakedness of all creatures, kin to him only in one aspect, the tassel on the tail. But it is she who does the work, kills the zebra, gives the cubs what they need, and him his fabled share. She also, my zoologist affirms what I inwardly know, receives a fair portion for herself. Servant she may be, but not slave. Naked she has her pride. Do not offer her less than her due. She will not accept it. And so I owe you a debt. That night, all unconsciously, you revealed to me, though I did not realize it till much later, the dual nature of the signs. 
But for your doubts about times and places, I might have gone through life tossing a non-existent mane and chafing at the burden of it. As it is, I travel light and keep Delos in my mind. There, in that island, where nobody may be born or die, nor presumably, though I have not heard this explicitly stated, participate in that third process that reconciles birth and death, stands the avenue of lions. But are they lions, or solely lions, stripped as they are down to the bone of their regal vestments, their manes if they are manes, simply tokens, mere metaphors of the chisel? Have we not here a twofold symbol of the island's twofold lord, neither lion nor lioness, but sacerdotally both, priest and priestess of Apollo and Artemis, son and daughter, in each marble shape of the son and daughter of the sun? Perhaps you think this irrelevant. I have no right to be right, remember, nor wrong either, for that matter. But knowing the charts, you will also know that I cannot evade the two fish. Therefore, I have a need to question something I cannot help but call the mono-lordship of the Zodiac. All right, we have Pisces and Gemini, both pairs astrologically always assumed to be males. But can there be any place, process, activity, concept, where the two fish, complementary opposites, have not, by the very nature of things, each their own particular sphere? Is not every sign lawfully partnered by its counterpart, its mute spouse, layman, affinity? On a fishmonger's slab, a female trout cannot be distinguished from the male. On a dish, they taste exactly the same. But in their own watery world, they must surely function differently. And astrologically, as bearers of portent, if the signs have influence at all, this difference must work upon the souls born under Pisces. Aries, Taurus, Capricorn are like Leo, the grandees, and easily accessible to this concept. They are, let us say, the coverers. One can see their analogues, the covered, in every field and pasture, creatures bearing appellations that the world has turned into epithets. What woman, under the sign of the ram, would confess to being a sheep, a thing that bleats, stands in cues, and obeys even a dog? Yet, if you have ever lived near a flock, you will know that each sheep speaks with her own voice, attacks your backside if you annoy her, teaches her young to suckle kneeling, and knows that Christ did not say to Peter, feed my wolverines. And who, when asked her zodiacal identity, will say, I am a cow? Yet the cow gives milk of all creatures, is the most meditative, thinking things over in mind and stomach, without presuming to come to conclusions. If it could be said of me, what Robert Louis Stevenson said of her, I would feel I could die happy. And blown by all the winds that pass, and wet with all the showers, she walks amid the meadow grass, and eats the meadow flowers." As for the she-Capricorn, will she admit to nanny-goat? Yet nanny too ruminates and is milked, fosters young younglings not of her breed, is quick to attack, slow to obey, compared to the billy, smells like a rose, and has a digestion that can cope as easily with the lid of a kettle as with a blade of grass. Strong, earthy, dauntless, affectionate. No bad way to live by the sign of the goat, if you're willing to assume the name. As to the twins, traditionally the lily-white boys are clothed all in greeno, Castor and Pollux, tamers of horses. Well, one can but wonder. The abstract symbol, which more often reveals the inner meaning than the figurative version of a sign, shows Gemini simply as the Roman, too. If Green Grow the Rushizo had rather said the lily-white children, it would have come closer to the truth. The Gemini she can also tame horses. Indeed, it is part of her role to do so. But her horses will be of a different color, and she will tame them differently, indirectly, with hint and suggestion. 
going forward one moment and withdrawing the next. Never let him see that you want him, and the colt will come sniffing at the bridle. With cancer, we are again in water, and as with Pisces, who am I, creature of earth, to know how a sea thing functions? Crabs move sideways, but this biological fact merely assures me, myself a lover of indirection, as a way to find direction out, that on the broad beaches and down in the ocean, the sideways going of the female would be somehow different from that of the male, sidling, devious, oblique. Here again, it is best to stay with the symbol which, without words, pours its meaning out, to be apprehended if not understood. Hath the rain a father? Who can know the heart of a crustacean? Let us pass Lord Leo by. We have, in a sense, dealt with him, and he will not notice our neglect. As male and all but a few females, he is wholly concerned with his own grandeur and hedged with his kingly divinity. So we come to her, the one sign in the zodiac traditionally presented in feminine guise. But why? Are there no male virgins? And what does virginity mean here? The nun, the monk, cords of Ave Maria only, no hymen, no hymenae? Surely not. It is possible to be profligate and still in a state of Virgo grace. The clue lies, again, in the abstract sign, so like one cannot but feel it was by intention, that of Scorpio, the M with the tail turned inwards, to screen, protect, preserve, untouched, and the M with the tail turned outwards, to touch, to sting, to remind. Does not that inverted tale suggest that in both male and female, some part should be kept intact, unravished, his or her idiosyncratic own, the secret seed of the self? The woman who gives or inflicts her all will feel betrayed by and revile the man who will not part with his. If all is given, what is left? An emptiness that nothing will fill, not even resentment. On the other hand, the man who is lost and drowns in her will never satisfy the woman who is looking for a rock. Where are you, she will say. Where is that in you that is not for me and is for that reason precious? In fact, she is asking him to be Libra, with male in one scale, female the other, holding the balance not overthrown. And if he cannot manage this, she will be well within her rights if she hops into the next sign and gives him a scorpion sting. Both Scorpios, again my zoologist, have poison in their tails. But would not the sexes, I inquired, use their weapon in different ways? No, no, he replied. Same tale, same sting. He is not a man who would have any truck with metaphor or symbol. But stinging is a feminine activity, no matter which sex does it. A female Scorpio, I tend to think, would wilily, before shooting her dart, make sure there was not a dock leaf handy. I was careful, as you may imagine, not to press the expert about the centaur. A myth, he would scoff, meaning lie, of course. A way of telling savages that man is a twofold composite of intellect and lust. How could there be a female centaur? And I would merely raise my eyebrows and wonder where he had been all his life. But a woman born under Sagittarius will, if only figuratively, also need to hit or miss the mark, and to do it in her own way, which is not the way of a man. Watch any archery contest. A man will use his bow and arrow simply as adjuncts, instruments. With a woman, they are part of herself. It is the same with a tennis racket. She is the bowstring and the flesh. It is she herself who flies to the target. And can we forget the Amazons, daughters of the great goddess, formed as vessels for bearing life, who mutilated their mother part in order more deftly to inflict death? No, for they are ever with us, allegorically breastless, demanding in spite of their lineage, equality with men, 
equality. One does not know whether to laugh or weep at such a declination. A difficult sign to live, the archer. And what of Aquarius, whose age some say is already here? Others disagree, no matter. If it be not now, it is to come. Our readiness is all. Well, we have waited long for it, some two thousand years. In the pictorial zodiac, the one who will lead us to the upper chamber is always shown as a man alone, not a female in sight. But what does he carry in his hand? A pitcher, flagon, or amphora, the ultimate morphology of the feminine. And the abstract sign is that of water, the element of yin. Black fish with white eye, white fish with black, are not more essential to each other than these two, man and watering pot. The process is one, relationship at every level, but the functions, naturally, are two. I will pour out, I will be poured. Is there not an echo here of St. John's Apocrypha? To me, this is the epitome of all the zodiacal signs. It tells us more clearly than any of the others that where there is one, there will be two, and if two, inevitably three, the blessed preceding third, life-giving, baptismal, releasing water or spirit, if you like. That preceding third, neither in both, is to me the heart of the matter. If I could choose, I would choose this sign. But as with rights, there are no choices. Only that implacable purpose, my something else that awaits the name that under Aquarius may perhaps be spoken. You may say, for you are a learned man, that all this has always been implicit in astrological parlance, that Eve, after all, is a rib of Adam, and why extrapolate at length on one of Adam's parts? Even so, sir, the doubt remains. Why, on that night of wine and candles, did you not descry within the lion the lion's naked rib? Typically, I had to do the work myself to travel far and dig deep in order even to come to the question. I will take this letter to the riverbank and ask Charon to row it over. He surely will not charge me. I know that you will not lightly dismiss it, if only for friendship's sake. You may even perhaps discuss it with cronies. If Pythagoras, whom I deeply revere, should happen to be among them, say, even though he smile at my foible, that if he were not a vegetarian, except of course in the matter of beans, I would gladly kill a springbok for him. Of course, I shall not look for an answer. My business is with questions. But when at last I pay my obol, meet me at the ferry. Our time for this month's podcast has come to an end. Please feel free to visit us at parabola.org, where you will find a host of other stories, essays, and poems available to read for free online. We'd also love to connect with you on social media, where we have active communities on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Tumblr. Remember that, thanks to the Gurdjieff Foundation of Illinois, you can now also access a free searchable index of our entire 40-year archive. Parabola Magazine is a nonprofit publication, and we rely on listeners and readers like you to keep going. Please consider subscribing, purchasing a back issue like Androgyny, from which we just read, or making a tax-deductible donation to the magazine at parabola.org. Our final thought for today comes from Marie-Louise von Franz, who said, A tendency toward ordered consciousness and a basic tendency towards, let us call it, a counterposition, something that acts according to emotion, moods, and momentary disturbances, a semi-animal figure, is there from the very beginning. It comes up at the same moment as a double movement of the birth of consciousness, just as when you stretch out your arm, you move two muscles, one which contracts and one which does the opposite. 
So you can say that from the very beginning of consciousness, if there is that yes toward consciousness, there is also the no, the tendency toward undoing and creating a counterposition. I'm Betsy Cornwell, and this has been the Parabola Podcast. Thank you for listening.